The following is a collection of podcasts from the Men of Valor program hosted by Dr. Mark Laser and Randy Everett called The God of Second Chances. Chapter 4 Today we're going to get to uh, one of my favorite stories. It's actually one of the stories that's uh, behind our three spiritual questions that we ask in the book entitled uh, Becoming a Man of Valor. It's the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And to, and share that story with our listeners because I think that, that uh, your, uh, your average fan of Scripture might not be aware of that particular story. I think it's a really interesting one. Well, I think there's so many stories in Scripture where people have maybe memorized or focused or locked in on one particular line of the story. And uh, when we do that, uh, we don't necessarily put the story in its entire larger context and get all of the things there that the uh, writer here, in this case, uh, John, the Apostle John, is wanting us to know. So yes, in the telling of the story, from start to finish, I think we'll we'll get a picture of that larger context and why it's really important to our population of people that we work with here at Faithful and True. Right. So it starts with Jesus uh, in Jerusalem being questioned by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, as we know, were bent on exposing Jesus as being a theological heretic. They They wanted to accuse him of being a false teacher, of committing heresy, so that uh, they could bring him to trial and somehow punish him. Have evidence against him. Have evidence against him. And, uh, you know, ideally they, they wanted to have him put away, to be put to death, which, in fact, they accomplished uh, through, you know, the, the manipulations that happened at the end of the gospel story. So uh, in, in our story, they are questioning him about matters of theology. They're questioning him about who has the authority to baptize. So uh, as we all know in the early part of the story of Jesus there, his uh, cousin, John, is uh, leading the way. He's the voice crying in the wilderness. He's the one uh, saying, prepare the way for the Lord. And he is, in fact, baptizing people. Uh, he baptized Jesus uh, we all know the story of Jesus' baptism, where uh, God's voice came down from heaven uh, talking about, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So John was baptized, baptizing people. That eventually got him in trouble and uh, uh, got him uh, killed, of course. Jesus, in our story, is uh, getting emotionally tired. One of the things that I think John is trying to point out to us, John, I think, as a writer, is very good at pointing out both the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. And we're going to see those elements in our story. So first of all, in terms of the humanity, we see here that Jesus is emotionally tired. He's emotionally tired of the questions and the conflict. So let's just pause for a moment and ask any of those listening to us, have you ever been tired of questions? Uh, the same question over and over again, or uh, a series of questions, or people who just seem to ask way too many questions. So uh, I think Jesus is experiencing something that is common to all of us, really, that you know, there are times when we just don't want to hear one more question. Well, it's emotional fatigue, you know, and it's kind of oh. coupled with 
uh, when you are tired of being bombarded by a line of questioning, uh, it attacks you physically with your physical strength and your endurance for it, as well as that emotional mm -hmm. strength that you can only imagine the emotional strength of someone like Jesus. Right, that is right. So Jesus decides in our story to uh, make a journey back up north to Galilee, and in Galilee, we have the sense that the, there's not the authorities, there's not the oppression, there's not the questioning. Uh, Jesus has a lot of friends up there. He's, he's well-received, well-liked, well-respected. Uh, he's safe up there. And so he decides to make that journey. Now, as the crow flies, in order to go from Jerusalem to Galilee, uh, in those days, you would go right smack dab through the uh, region known as Samaria. And we know, of course, from a number of stories in the New Testament that the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were one of the uh, groups and tribes that were left over from the ten northern tribes of the Jews, allowing themselves, uh, particularly in captivity, to uh, intermarry. So they were the results of intermarriage. They were unfaithful Jews in that sense, so while lots of them had Jewish history, heritage, and blood in them, they were not pure Jews, and as such were considered unclean. Uh, you were not to talk to them, you were not to associate with them. If you accidentally came into physical contact with a Samaritan, you had to go to the temple to be ritually cleansed. Uh, by the way, this, this dynamic, this hatred, this uh, this uh, prejudice that the Jews had against the Samaritans makes the story, of course, of uh, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan uh, make a lot of sense. So in our story, there's just no way that a respectable Jew would, would go through, would travel through Samaria, but uh, Jesus decides to do that. The average Jew would, would circumvent it and uh, go to the east and then back to the west, uh, and that journey would take an extra two days. Jesus decides to go directly, and uh, the, the next thing that happens in our story is that uh, he comes uh, to a village called Sychar. Uh, Sychar is one of the Samaritan village. The really only significance of it geographically is that uh, there is a well about one mile south of Sychar, which is where actually Jesus stops. Uh, the Bible tells us that at this point, Jesus, uh, being already emotionally tired, now is physically tired from the walk, and uh, he decides to sit down and rest. So the humanity of Jesus uh, is resting. He sends the disciples ahead, and he's sitting there by this well. Now, what is famous about this well is that it was part of the inheritance that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. He had 12 sons. We all know that story of Joseph and the favoritism, the coat of many colors, the, the brothers being so jealous that they, they uh, have him sold into slavery. He winds up down in Egypt, and we all know that story of how he comes to save the entire Middle East because of his accurate uh, predictions about Pharaoh's dreams. So in the process of that, Joseph becomes second in command in the entire kingdom of Egypt. I like to think that Joseph, because of the power he enjoyed in Egypt, could have had a tomb built for himself, could have uh, been very royally treated at the end of his life. And uh, instead, he, he asked that when he dies, that his body be transported back to uh, this region and that he be buried uh, next to this well, 
which his father has given him. So it's a very famous place in that context. But other than that, from a practical standpoint, the well is, uh, is not very useful because it, it's uh, a mile south of the city. So there may be a few travelers who use this well, a few shepherds occasionally who use this well. But the respectable women of Sikar uh, would not want to travel a mile south from the city and then carry a bucket or two uh, of, of a gallon of water, which weighs quite a bit. They would not want to have carried that a mile back north to the city. It was impractical. The uh, Bible also tells us that at this point uh, in the day, it's the sixth hour, the Jewish clock starts at 6 a.m., so we know that the time of day is high noon. It's high noon. Mm-hmm. It's hot. Uh, no one gathers uh, water by custom or by practicality in those days at noon. In other words, the women of any community would go to the wells at uh, the early morning hours. Well, it's still cool. It's still cool and gather water for the day. And then in the evening, the cool of the evening, they would gather water again for the night. Mm -hmm. So it was a a twice-a-day ritual, but it was early and late. The picture that's being painted here is that that this well is not uh, a populated place. It's not going to be where the... uh, the respectable women are gathering. Uh, So who would come there, and why would she come there at this point? Well, uh, we know from the story, of course, that there is a woman who comes to the well at this hour. Jesus is sitting there. Uh, The speculation uh, in the interpretation of this is she's coming because she's shunned. She's being uh, excluded, uh, not treated well by the respectable men and women of Sikar, so she has to kind of do things by herself, not so much in secret, but she's just avoiding you know, people by coming at that particular time to that particular well. There's one other or two other elements about this. Uh, so first of all, we've established that Jesus should in no way be talking to a Samaritan. Now let's take it another step. Uh, in Jesus' day, in his culture, it was against the law to talk to women in public. No man could talk to any woman in public. They could not talk to their sisters, their mothers, their daughters, their friends. And what were they guarding against back in those days? But uh, obviously sexual immorality. Without getting into Middle East sociology and where some of that continues to stand today, uh, let's leave it to the, uh, the fact that Jesus was not supposed to be talking, number one, to a Samaritan, number two, to a woman. So here comes this woman who is a Samaritan. Mm-hmm. No way Jesus should talk to her. Thirdly, uh, as they do it, in fact, begin to talk, we, we learn Jesus uh, says to the woman, um, call, go call your husband. And the lady says, uh, sir, I have no husband. And Jesus says, well, you're being honest because uh, the truth is you've been married five times and you're currently living with, a, with another man, a sixth man. So uh, this is the third strike uh, against this lady, meaning that um, a divorced woman in Jewish culture was really uh, not well accepted. A Jewish husband, for no good reason, had the ability to have his... Uh, uh, wife, uh, uh, divorced wife stoned. So uh, this woman, you know, probably lived at some level in fear of her life. The fact that she was probably living with another man may have uh, as much had to do with protection as anything else. But when you think about being divorced five times, you know, that is 
John, the writer, is painting us a picture of this is as bad a situation <laughs> as he could possibly describe. Put all of that together and remember, who is Jesus going to talk to? Well, isn't it fascinating, Randy, you know, who Jesus decides to talk to throughout the Gospels? You know, it's not the respectable leaders always. It's not the, the, the high priests. It's not, you know, the, uh, uh, the people who are, you know, socially acceptable. It's, it's oftentimes the outcast. Our story here in John 4 is, is really a picture of the worst possible outcast there could be. And, you know, I think that, uh, to me, uh, this story is very encouraging because the average uh, uh, man, and in many cases wife, that, that comes to our center here, participates in our ministry wherever, I mean, they, they deal with a lot of shame. They, they are uh, the men, sexual sinners, and, you know, they have all of that sense of unworthiness. And, uh, you know, to remember that despite uh, whatever their sexual history is, uh, whatever their nationality is, whatever their race is, you are exactly the, the kind of person that Jesus would want to talk to. Not to scold, not to uh, to judge, or not to put down, but, but to encourage. And we'll see that happen here in just a minute. So what else do they talk about? Well, at some point in their conversation, Jesus doesn't have anything to draw water with. The woman notices that, and she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. You don't have any buckets. And Jesus now says the line that I was referring to at the start of the show that, that most of us remember. He said, truly I tell you that anyone who drinks of the water of this well uh, will always be thirsty, but anyone who drinks of the living water that I offer will never thirst. When I think of this story, uh, it takes me back to really the first time I thought about this story in context to a conversation that I was having with a sex addict. Uh, without getting into any details that would violate anonymity, let me just say that this was a very famous sex addict. He had been very prolific in his sexual history. He had been with over 3,000 women, or so he claimed. He had had sex with $3 million worth of prostitutes. He had had sex with some very, very famous women. When I was, when I was listening to his story, I remember thinking, this guy has actually had sex with women that the average man that I work with only fantasizes about. So if you think about famous women, the fact that you may fantasize about those women, this guy had actually done it. He'd been there and done that. At the end of our conversation, 3,000 women, $3 million worth of prostitutes, must have been very high-end prostitutes, um, he said to me uh, in, a, in a voice of abject despair, he said, it was never enough. You know, I always wanted more. That was the first time that uh, in, in response to a person, uh, this was, by the way, this was 20 plus years ago, but the first time in response to someone, this story came up in my, in my counseling head. And I, t I told him the story. Um, I wish I could say that, you know, he got down on his knees and accepted Christ and accepted a different way of life, but uh, by all indications, that's, that's not uh, the case. But I, but I did pledge to use this story because the average guy that I, that I work with, they think, well, you know, if I could just have this sexual experience with that person uh, or, you know, at least see the picture here or there, the video, whatever. I mean, addicts continually are on some, some quest, you know, to find the, the, the ultimately fulfilling sexual fantasy or sexual experience. 
And everyone that I've ever talked to, over 5,000 men in the course of our history here, nobody has ever said that any of this is satisfying. So uh, uh, it's just a reminder that Jesus was right. If you drink of the well of sexual immorality, sexual sinfulness, that will never be satisfying. That thirst will never be quenched. It's, uh, it, it's the, the perfect analogy uh, for the men that we work with here. That is right. So uh, what is satisfying? Well, Jesus says it's living water. Now, this is one of those biblical images that I think uh, sometimes we don't always completely understand the uh, symbolism of that image in Jesus' day. Uh, to the, remember, the story started with who has the authority to baptize. <laughs> well, living water to the Jewish mind was clean water, running water, purifying water. Uh, Jesus, of course, represents baptism that will, in fact, be life-giving, life-sustaining, providing of salvation for eternity. So, you know, the average Christian thinks about this story and thinks, well, you know, Jesus is talking about being baptized here, you know, following Christ and all of that. And that is exactly right. But I think the average man that I talk to would like to know, okay, you know, how can this living water be a little bit more applied here? You know, what, what does that mean? When I teach this story at our three-day workshop, I basically say that, you know, how many of you came to this workshop with uh, secrets and facts about your history that you'd never, ever told anyone, and that you finally were put into a small group of men, told some of those stories, exposed some of those secrets for the first time in your life, and found that men were, were, were smiling, were nodding their heads, were understanding. At the end of your sharing, they wanted to affirm you and give you a hug, wanted to encourage you and, and all of that. To me, the fellowship of Christ's followers who hear the worst and most vile of all histories and are empathetic, sympathetic, uh, understanding, forgiving, grace-filled, that is a living, breathing example of living water to me. So living water often, I think, is about Christ followers in community sharing uh, grace, forgiveness, encouragement uh, to all of those of us who have ever suffered from a great deal of shame. I mean, we need that kind of uh, grace. That's what Jesus is talking about. That is satisfying. That is fulfilling. That does quench the thirst that we all desire, which is, you know, to be accepted, to be loved, to be nurtured, to be included, those kinds of things that we talk about here at Faithful and True. So as we're wrapping up today's story and today's show, um, take us through how Jesus provided for this woman yeah. his, his power as the God of second chances with her storied history uh, intact. The really coolest part of this story, I think, I'm getting excited thinking about it, and I've, talked, I've taught this story hundreds of times, but, you know, it, it never ceases to amaze me. All right, so we've got all these three strikes against this woman. They've had this conversation. Some of it's been theological. Finally, at the end of the conversation, the woman kindly has put, put together in her Jewish background mind, she says, are you the one, the Messiah, uh, that we have long been waiting for, she says. <laughs> You know, this guy has given her some truth. He's obviously impressed her. He's known some stuff. He said, are you the Messiah is basically what she's asking. And Jesus says, I am he. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus reveals to a human being that oh, he, he is, really in fact, is. the Messiah. Now, who's he revealing it to? 
this woman who John has painted the picture, the worst possible the outcast. <laughs> Does it, isn't that cool? You know yeah. that you know you can be the worst possible outcast in your own mind. You can be the most shameful person in the history of the universe, and you're exactly the one that Jesus wants to talk to, and you're the one that Jesus is going to want to know who he really is. You know, to put all of this in its full context, the first story, the first sermon. The first reporting of Jesus being the Messiah is told by a fallen, sinful woman. I don't know about you, but you know that's encouraging to me. If ever I doubt my ability to go out someplace and teach or preach or have any kind of authority because of my history, you know I, I like to think back on stories like this uh, and say maybe it's those of us that completely get the need for grace that ought to be the ones that are preaching about it.